0: Welcome to the EPS Podcast, Licensing and Purple Guide Updates Explored. In this session, representatives from the Association of Festival Organisers, Events Industry Forum and the Local Authority Event Organisers Group explore updates to the Purple Guide and address the latest licensing issues.
1: Okay, I think we're good to go. Uh, Welcome along, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us at the main stage at the event production show. It's brilliant to see so many people here um, as we explore the updates to the Purple Guide um, and some licensing information as well. Um, Before we get started, and we've got an amazing panel of experts here who I'll uh, get to introduce themselves in a second, uh, but we've just got a couple of bits of housekeeping. Um, The first thing to say is that we really want this session to be as interactive as possible. So whilst we're talking uh, up on stage, if you have any questions at any point, please do feel free to raise your questions. We'll tackle them literally as they come in. Um, This is your session. This is for you to benefit from the knowledge of the people on the stage. So please do feel free to ask questions as we go. If you don't know how to do that, we're using a system called Vivox. If you look at the screen uh, just over here, um, there's a QR code there. If you scan that, that'll give the opportunity for you to uh, submit questions, which we'll then go on to answer as we go. Um, I will mention that a couple of times as we go through, but please, please do use this opportunity to ask the people on stage um, their advice and thoughts. So, uh, without any further ado, uh, my name's Craig Mathie. It's a real pleasure to meet you all. I'm just going to ask all of the panel to to introduce themselves, uh, and I'm just going to start on my left-hand side with Gary.
2: Uh, Hi, I'm Gary Grant. I'm a barrister who specialises in licensing law. Uh, I'm a total legal whore. I act both for festival organisers, or if the local authority or police or residents call me first, I'll act for them, but ideally not in the same case. Uh, I'm also the Vice-Chairman of the Institute of Licensing, and that's the body that represents licensing professionals and, of course, covers the alcohol and entertainment licensing aspects of large events. Thank you very much, Gary. Steve?
3: Hello, my name's Steve Heap. I'm the General Secretary of the Association of Festival organizers and the chairman of the Events Industry Forum, the Events Industry Forum being responsible for distribution of water. Oh, no, we're not. We're responsible for the publication, The Purple Guide, and uh, that's where I'm spending most of my life these days.
1: Lovely. Thank you very much, Steve. And Jim.
0: I'm Jim Winship. I'm uh, Director of the Event Services Association and Secretary of the Events Industry Forum. Uh, uh, Steve mentioned we spend most of our time between the two of us, I think, uh, working on The Purple Guide, so that's our life these days.
1: Perfect, you're teeing up my first question wonderfully. Uh, Alison, and uh, over to you.
4: Hi, I'm Alison Drummond. I am here representing LAOG, which is the Local Authority Event Organisers Group. So, um, we are an organisation that uh, represents over 120 councils in the UK, and just to ensure best practice and governance and guidance between us all. And I also work, I represent LAOG with the Purple Guide and the Events Industry Forum. Thank you.
1: Lovely. Thank you very much, all of you, for for being with us today. So um, obviously the title of the session is a bit of a giveaway of what we're going to discuss today. But um, for those people who in the audience don't know what the Purple Guide is, uh, Jim, would you be able to just give us a bit of a a history and and where it is now?
0: Very briefly. uh, The the Purple Guide was developed in the early 1990s by uh, a group of people from the outdoor event industry with the HSE. Because there was no guidance really in the industry um, and it was run by the HSC. I think it was the biggest selling publication stationery office ever had um, and uh, after about nineteen twenty years, nothing had been done to keep it up to date so uh, we approached them with the intention of trying to get it uh, sorted out and get it bring it back into the real world uh, and but eleven year twelve years ago now. Uh, we managed to get them to set up working parties, start to redraft it and then we ran into problems that they wouldn't cover anything other than health and safety legislation so we eventually reached an agreement after lengthy discussions that uh, the Events Industry Forum, which was very much in its infancy at that stage uh, just a meeting point really for event associations uh, would take over the guide and develop it and it's moved from I can't remember how many chapters it was originally, but it's now 35 chapters, I think, and uh, more to come.
1: Perfect, thank you. Um, so, so, fair to say the last couple of years in the events industry has been pretty busy, uh, and uh, as a result, some updates to the, uh, the work were probably due. Um, Steve, could you just uh, paint a, a bit of a picture for us in terms of what's been updated in the Purple Guide recently, um, and maybe a, a little bit of rationale for, for some of those decisions?
3: Thanks, Craig. I, I probably won't go to every chapter that's been updated but, but I can tell you that we are working on every, of the thir- every one of the 35 chapters a little bit at a time. In particular, for instance, um, I've just finished proofing the new, completely new chapter on medical advice for the events industry and uh, four experts worked on it for four months and it is a really really valuable piece so once that's published which will be in two or three weeks time we will let you know if you're already a subscriber to the purple guide then you'll get an email from us to tell us that that uh, to tell you that that is ready and it's well worth a read um there have been lots of other updates as we're working our way through them we're bringing into play Uh, new writers, uh, new contributions. Uh, A lot of updating went on during the Covid period. There's now uh, some guidance on how to deal with pandemics. Um, We're not suggesting there's going to be one round the corner, but who knows? Who knew that Covid was coming? Um, So we're not saying this is all about how to handle Covid. It's about how to handle pandemics. We hope never to get caught out like that again. So there's plenty of updates constantly happening. Amazing, thank you. And
1: um, the Purple Guide, just before we kind of move on to to Alison, um, is is by the industry for the industry, effectively, isn't it? And there are there's some grants which are distributed from the from the Purple Guide proceeds. Am I right in thinking that?
0: Yeah, the 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 working groups are pulled together by the industry, uh, but we also have the support ongoing from the HSE. So every every chapter that gets updated is checked by them and they endorse that. So uh, it's still recognised by that side. And We're actually moving towards wider recognition because we're in the throes of trying to sort out uh, primary authority agreement for the Purple Guide, which means that uh, it'll get recognised by bays as uh, a a recognised form of uh, uh, guidance, uh, which I think will add value even further for it.
1: Lovely, thank you. And Alison, from your point of view, in in terms of local authorities, um, in uh, offices up and down the country, how do they perceive the Purple Guide um, through the event planning process and, uh, and from start to
4: finish of events, really? We find it invaluable, and we always have done. And obviously, you know, the, the continual improvements and updates to, to, to the guide are of so much importance to us. We, events teams within local authorities, understand events. We understand the majority of it, but we're especially where there isn't an events team in place and you're relying on the statutory roles, like licensing and environmental health officers and so on, they don't necessarily always get the importance and impacts of events. So that guide provides that Additional guidance to them.
1: Amazing, uh, and Gary, kind of in the world of uh, of licensing, um, how do you see the purple guide being applied to maybe event licenses, or um, is it referred to through the process in subcommittees? Um, what's your experience of dealing with it as a as a publication? Uh,
2: I'll give you a concrete recent example, and that was the relicensing of the Manchester Arena following the the ter- terrorist attack. And Manchester City Council, who, who I acted for, were seeking to put a whole series of conditions on the license, because the premises license for the arena was very heavily criticized as being under-regulated um, by the inquiry report, the first one. And the licensing officers in Manchester used the Purple Guide, among others, to propose certain uh, conditions which had to be complied with. And although they had to adapt it, because obviously we're dealing with an indoor arena rather than an outdoor one, they used it quite heavily to propose a whole series of conditions that they wanted on the license. So I think probably at a um, license applications initially, uh, if they're disputed, they go before three councillors of a licensing subcommittee. Those councillors will not probably have ever heard of the Purple Guide. Uh, and you would hope before the case ever got before the council that it's gone through the safety advisory groups that Alison was talking about, and they will heavily use the Purple Guide to assess whether they think the planning of this particular event is in line with the Purple Guide. If there remains a dispute that then has to be dealt with and uh, arbitrated on by the councillors, then there will be a cross-reference to the Purple Guide. So if I'm acting for... Uh, resident who's objecting or a local authority who's not happy I would turn to the purple guide and use that as the benchmark and then claim that the organizer either is or isn't meeting that particular level.
1: Okay and you mentioned in your answer there the kind of Manchester Arena attack and the the kind of subsequent um, work that's doing and I think probably one of the things that is maybe worth kind of just Picking up on in terms of this conversation is the impact of that, what impact that may be having on the Purple Guide, but also more kind of broadly in terms of um Yeah, in terms of event licensing, in in terms of event safety, I know that you're pretty close to that case. or you've certainly got some kind of good insight to it. And I know Steve and and Jim and Alison are involved in some discussions looking at how that is um, becoming best practice and codes of practice and all that sort of thing. So what's your kind of take on uh, the the kind of the outcomings of the attack and and Martin's law or protect duty and, and how far down the line that might come in?
2: Uh, Martin Het was one of the young uh, people who lost their lives at the Ariander Grand Concert. And his distraught mother has put her grief and the energy that created into trying to reduce the risk of it happening to any other mother. Uh, and that's Fegan Murray. And Fegan Murray has led uh, what's an extremely successful and powerful campaign to try and ensure that there is a legal duty on all organisers of large events and at large premises um, to risk assess uh, terrorist acts and to prepare for how to deal with them if, God forbid, they happen. Uh, And that has led directly to what a campaign to introduce what was originally called the Protect Duty, um, but has now been renamed Martin's Law. And the stage we've now reached is that a few days before Christmas, the Home Office issued a fact sheet that set out for the very first time publicly sort of the general thumbnail sketch of what it might look like. And although all the details are gonna follow in legislation, which the government tells us will be introduced as soon as possible, whatever that may mean, it looks like they're going to split the um, level of duty that will be placed on organizers uh, of festivals, of uh, you know, museums, of uh, large events, into standard tier and enhanced tier. And the standard tier will apply to events or premises with a capacity of 100. And that will have a certain base level of risk assessment and taking fairly obvious due diligence measures, but make it a legal duty. Um, things are gonna inc- The burden is going to increase for any premises or event which has a capacity of 800-plus. And those go into the enhanced tier. And then there's going to be a legal duty to have a, uh, a formal risk assessment, and there will be certain formalities that have to be addressed, you know, whether it will be security, whether it will be medical provision, and so on. And that will be placed on organisers, as I say, as a legal duty with um, legal sanctions if it's not complied with. I don't think it's really anything for any responsible operator to fear, because everything that's going to be in there would be the sort of due diligence stuff that uh, decent operators carry out anyway when they carry out risk assessments. But the concern of the government is because there was no legal sanction for not doing it, that it dropped down the priority list of hard pressed organizers and they want it to be right at the top and there'll be legal sanctions if it's not.
1: Thank you so much for that. Um, I think it's, um, it's fair to say, and uh, one of the things in the events that I'm involved in organizing and um, also anecdotally from other people involved in the sector is this is starting to creep into discussions at SAGs, uh, questions from local authorities in terms of what are you doing about uh, Martin's law? despite the fact it's not currently law. Um, so it'd be interesting to just touch on that if we can a little bit. So, um, Steve, what's the kind of state of play with um, like CT provision in the Purple Guide as it stands? Is there a plan to review that? And just any views on that that question generally?
3: At the moment, we have uh, chapter 35 is counter-terrorism uh, provided by UK CMA. And it's our intention to ask them to update as Martin's Law gradually starts to come into play. The important thing to remind everybody, as, as uh, legally we were just advised, it's not law, it's not law yet. But it is extremely good guidance and we should, as organisers, we should start to consider that possibility and pay attention to what might happen whether your event be a village fete run by a charity committee or whether it be a 25,000 capacity music festival you have to start considering the possibility that this may happen and build it into your management plan and your risk assessment so that when you get to your licensing point um, whether the SAG actually ask you questions about counter-terrorism and or Martin's Law, you can come forward and say you have considered the situation and you have put things in place. The thing to remember most of all about all the chapters in The Purple Guide, it's that word guide. This is guidance, not law. It's experts telling you how best to do things when law is required within the purple guide we point to it we we have within the online copy we have guidance that becomes more information if you require it is here and we point people to law so we will point people in the course of time in the counterterrorism chapter we'll point people towards martins law when it becomes law
1: Amazing, thank you. Um, and Alison, I saw you nodding away whilst we were um, talking about these questions being raised in, in SAG groups already. Um, do you have any kind of practical experience? Has anything kind of filtered down from central government in terms of how local authorities should be reviewing this? Or is it just individual authorities trying to look at things in the best way they possibly can?
4: Local authorities are trying to look at it individually, but as well, we're all look collectively looking at it. I mean, a good local authority and its safety advisory group should have been looking at these measures ever since 9-11 anyway. It's some have been very strongly and some haven't. Um, good safety advisory group should have been asking these questions for many years, asking event organisers what their measures are, what their plans are, what are those counter-terrorism risks, what, what, what are they putting in to mitigate those risks? It's quite staggering to us that... Many event organisers for the last decade haven't been thinking about these things. So at least with the Martins law coming in, it's going to give some, some structure to everything. And having that legislation and that guidance there is what people need to take this forward. Absolutely. Public safety is at the forefront of us in local authority and always has been. But ever since the Manchester attack, it's made a lot of local authorities pull up their socks a lot more.
1: Perfect. Yeah. Um, just a quick reminder to anyone that does have any questions about anything we're speaking about. The QR code is back on the screen. Please feel free to to scan that and pose any questions that you have for the for the panel. Um, Jim, did you have any points to raise on that? Yeah, you I, think I,
0: the, the, I think we have to recognise as event organisers that we we are responsible for the people who come to our events, and so we should have learnt the lesson from the Manchester Arena and nine eleven and all the other things. And and. Terrorism is a real fact of life in our, the world we live in these days. So I think we all have that responsibility and we all ought to be addressing that now and not let, waiting for legislation to come in. I think the important thing from Purple Guide point of view is that we ourselves need to learn from that and we need to keep the chapters up to date, which is why it was so important that we took it back really as an industry. Uh, and our guidance needs to keep pace with all the learning we have from all these events that happen. And we're, we're constantly learning. Um, we're, the, there doesn't come an end to that. Uh, and I think the beauty of the Purple Guide, and the reason it's not printed and it's always online, is we can update it and we can do it quickly and keep up to date.
1: Amazing. Um, just kind of picking up, uh, Oh. Um, We'll we'll come to that question in a second. I just want to raise one based on something Alison mentioned. You said um, individual local authorities are looking at this in their own particular way. I think it's fair to say having sat on the side of an event organizer, that can be a frustration sometimes um, because you go from one local authority that tackles these issues in one way and you go to the next local authority and they tackle things in a different way. And I'm sure the same could probably be said of licensing. So what can we do as an industry to better unify our approach to these things and create a bit more standardization in terms of the approach of local authorities and event organizers working together?
4: That's a very good question, Craig. Thank you. I think the main point here would be to remember why local authorities are called local authorities because they're local. They're for the local people. Their local authorities have not been created to firstly uh, support events. They're there to support the people of those cities and towns, of those areas. Those needs of those people, those residents and businesses have to be put first beyond anything else. Within local authorities, you know, we see event applications and plans from a range of event organizers, and the worst thing we see is a copy and paste job where someone thinks that they can come along and just use the same old plan, the same license application that's just been slightly tweaked. We don't want that. What we want to do, we want to see events happening in our towns and cities. We know the importance of them. We understand those social and economic benefits, but what we want to do is see an event that is shaped for that town and city, not just something that comes along, makes a massive negative impact, which is what a lot of them do, goes off, and then there's no legacy. Go, ahead, Jim.
0: Yeah. I think uh, one of the thing, things we're trying to do is to try and encourage local authorities to follow the Purple Guide as a way of getting greater consistency. And that's one of the reasons why we're trying to go down this primary authority route, because it gets the Purple Guide recognised by local authorities uh, as a as a publication that everyone should be following. Uh, and I, I'm very conscious that... You can take the same event into two local authorities. One have, may have a very experienced event team and accept one system to do things. The next door authority doesn't have that and you, you find all sorts of rules changing. And I think we need to try and get away from that. And I think the Purple Guide is the route to doing that
1: yeah perfect um are we able to have the um the question up on screen um so this is uh one for you i would imagine gary um when it comes to event licensing should they depend on um sustainability conditions being met as suggested recently by climate scientists and i, I know there's there's quite a lot of work going on around sustainability uh, in the events industry broadly but do you i guess envisage a place where that could be licensable and have you seen that
2: already i think Increasingly, sustainability issues do raise their heads in um, in licensing. I mean, it's not, it's not brand new. At the time of the, the London Olympics in 2012, I was acting in an application to convert the Greenwich Peninsula into a big um, fan zone. And I remember there were lots of objections from residents on the basis that, because the area was going to be used by Dutch fans, um, the argument went from the resident, That meant they're going to drink a lot of beer, and that therefore means they're going to urinate in the local lake, and there's lots of very rare newts in the local lake, and therefore uh, killing the newts uh, is a good reason to refuse the licence. That argument did not find favour, but what you are increasingly seeing now is although licensing decisions have to be made, primarily with an eye on one or more of the four statutory licensing objectives, And those are the prevention of crime and disorder, the prevention of public nuisance, protecting kids from harm and public safety. And public safety is not the wider sort of aspect of, you know, how much noxious fumes will go into the air if you've got a thousand vehicles. It's public safety of users of the actual premises where you fall down a big hole in the middle of the uh, pub, for example. But increasingly what you're finding is that uh, every local authority has to draw up its own bespoke statement of licensing policy. And within those policies, you are increasingly seeing um, an expectation from the local councils that any applicant for a new license will consider sustainability and environmental issues. So you know, to take one discrete example, if you try and get a license in the London Borough of Southwark, they're going to want to know that you're using um, reusable uh, cups wherever possible instead of one-use plastic straws and cups. Now, it might be that an applicant will say, well, that's not one of the licensing objectives. But when you look at the dagger eyes from the councillors you're trying to persuade, pretty quickly you'll get that uh, applicant, the organiser, to say, I tell you what, we promise um, not to use single-use plastic uh, cups in the future. So they, councils are expecting it and they can get change uh, even though it's not the focus of licensing yet.
1: Perfect, thank you so much for the answer. Um, I just liked, while we're there, it would be quite nice to touch on sustainability. I know uh, Steve and I sit on a a group, um, Vision 2025, that's uh, launched uh, or launching the Green Events Code. So there's definitely a whole host of activity operating in that space. Um, How is that covered off in the Purple Guide as we sit today?
3: Okay Craig, The, um, uh, the sustainability chapter is underway. Uh, being written by Vision 2025 and other colleagues. And uh, we've just supported um, the writing and development of a green events code uh, with a Purple guide grant. So we're taking this very seriously. What we most definitely do not want to do is have Parliament changing the rules. Uh, We're very happy with the four licensing objectives and sustainability is a, it's a moral issue, it's an issue that we have to deal with ourselves as organisers. If we want to see our events still here in 10, 15, 20 years' time, then we have to do something about our sustainability and climate change practices within our events. And the next chapter that we'll put out in the Purple Guide will be guidance on sustainability. And it is a moving beast. It will be constantly updated. The reason we don't want to go to government and ask them to make changes is this is in in 2018, the the outdoor events industry was worth 30.4 billion pounds to the national economy, was employing 600,000 people. These are really important figures we believe after Covid they will start to climb again and we will probably pitch up in the region of £40 billion by the end of 2023. These are really important figures when it comes to talking with government and most of all what we want to do with government is demonstrate to them that we are a professional events industry that knows what we are doing. We don't need any further assistance with legislation. Great stuff, Jim.
0: Yeah, I was just going to pick up a point that uh, Steve touched on, which we should perhaps should say is that the all the revenue that comes in from the sales, the subscriptions, the Purple Guide, goes out in uh, the majority of it, anywhere apart from the direct costs, goes out in grants to the industry. So far, we've we've given grants of one hundred and ninety-six thousand uh, pounds to projects in the industry, which are there have to be projects that will benefit the wider industry so there's a the whole range of things and sustainability was one of the things we've we've just been giving a grant on
1: lovely thank you we've got a few more questions so thank you very much to anyone that submitted those um, uh, I'm not quite sure who's going to be the best person to take this one so hands up as and when you're ready um, but does the industry uh, the events industry have a prote- uh, protect duty working group uh, and if not should
3: it UK CMA are leading the purple guide chapter i.e as i said before on uh, counter-terrorism which will eventually bring in uh, martin's law so we're on the case we have a group of people who are looking into it and we'll continue to reach out to other experts and other people who wish to input not unlike licensing we'll be constantly looking at people who can help us provide good guidance?
1: I think um just in general talking about working groups, one of the positives that did come out of the pandemic was that slog to get in front of government seems to have uh, have worked. And I know plenty of people around this table and and others uh, sit on weekly conversations or monthly conversations with the Home Office around all of these conversations and other government departments who talked about primary authority earlier as well. So I think that is a positive that's come out of a very drastic situation for the sector is that we're now at the table to have these conversations with the relevant representatives of government and and that sort of thing as well, which I think is a a real positive. Um, Can we have the next question, please? So um, just in in general terms, uh, whose risk assessment takes precedence? um, Ours or the promoters? I'm not quite sure who ours is, um, which makes this a slightly challenging question. Um, But in terms of, um, I guess, event safety in general, um, who does that obligation and responsibilities sit with this. I'll I'll take this one really quickly. Uh, if it's your event, it's your responsibility. It's really simple. Um, any anyone that works for you, anyone that's advising you, anyone that's in the local authority, they're there to do that and that's that they have roles to fulfill. Um, but if it's your event, it's your responsibility. I don't know if anyone else has anything to add on that. Cool. Nice. And the last question was around uh tens, I think. Uh yes. Um, So, would it not make sense for the levels of duty in Protect Duty or Martin's Law um, to mirror TENS and premises licenses?
2: the licensing nerd to deal with that. Yes, please. Uh, In a word, no. And the reason why is because most premises licenses that now exist um, did not foresee the level of responsibility that will be put on operators as a result of the terrorist attacks of recent years. So most licenses will probably be fairly light touch and um, you will have to have an independent set of criteria which there will be partly descriptive I think in the new Martin's law but it's not going to be granular in what it tells operators they need to do. It will probably say something like um, the responsible person has to take all reasonably practicable steps to reduce the risk of terrorist attack uh, and deal with it if it happens and then and that's really where the purple guide is going to start coming into its own because then you start asking yourself well what's reasonably practicable and there's various sources for that and I think the purple guide uh, possibly with some guidance issued by the government is going to be right at the top of that idea of what's reasonably practicable so I think existing premises licenses tend to be Uh, under-conditioned when it comes to terrorist prevention uh, and dealing with it. As I say, the one exception is the Manchester Arena's new premises licence, but that by its very nature is wholly exceptional because that is the premises that led to this whole thing taking place and it's had a new licence granted specifically with the sort of issues around Martin's Law uh, incorporated within it.
1: That is a great licensing answer that I, <laughs> I was in no position to give, so thank you very much. Can, uh, I, just, Steve, yeah. can
3: I just add, Craig, the, the, uh, I, I'm not wishing to dwell on Martin's Law for the whole session. Uh, obviously, it's a hot potato at the moment. There's plenty of other chapters to look at. Um, but I, I think it's important that you know we we are already engaging with both the Home Office and DCMS on counter and indeed martin's law they are coming to us and saying this will eventually be written into law what do you think and so we do as an industry have an opportunity to input
1: yeah and i think the point that you made earlier one which is particularly relevant is that if you are a professional diligent operator you're covering most of this stuff of anyway and I think effectively what the law does is bring everyone hopefully up to the bottom standard and certainly not the top standard of, of where we should be maybe aiming as, uh, as event organizers. Um, I just wanted to move on a little bit from Martin so if we could and, and talk about local authorities um, in, in just a little bit of detail because um, I, I don't know where everyone in the room is from but my local authority's got sod all money, uh, sod all people, uh, but still really wants to deliver great events. So, um, and you hold an interesting place often as the licensing authority, the landowner, potentially the SAG chair uh, and stuff like that. So uh, just Alison, in your minds, how are local authorities with events at the moment? How does it feel on the ground? Do you want the honest answer? We
2: would love the honest answer, yeah. Give us the dishonest one.
4: (laughs) Okay. Oh, it's really wonderful. Okay, we've got a great vision. We've got a great aim. Um, No, it's utterly tough, and it's not going to get any better. Um, You know, local authorities used to be funded by central government, used to get the majority of funding. All of that is now gone. So local authorities have to obviously put those statutory core responsibilities first, and events unfortunately, are at the bottom of the list. We're seeing all over the country at the moment budgets being slashed, event teams being slashed. We understand as the the events people within local authority, those important, the importance of events. Like I said earlier, those social impacts, those economic impacts. Senior management doesn't always understand that and a good events person needs to make that case to senior management and to the politicians to get them on side, which we can only do working with a good promoter and a good event organizer as well who buys into that vision and those corporate priorities of a local authority. It's, it's really difficult. We don't have the answer yet. We, we need more money. <laughs> we wanna make stuff happen. We wanna work with more people and make more stuff happen. Yeah, great. Jim?
0: I think I think this whole thing is really worrying at the moment because I think what we're losing out of local authorities is the knowledge that's there that actually helps event organisers get events through and work working. And if we do lose that, it's going to get tougher for everyone doing events in local authority areas. And I, I think and this is where the Purple gu- Guide is going to become more and more important in set, giving a standard that local authorities can work with. But the worry is, if we lose the knowledge from the local authorities, that's going to make life tough for everyone.
1: Steve or Gary, have any kind of thoughts on that in terms of your dealings with...?
0: I, I, I think local authorities
3: obviously play a great role in, in the events, but at the end of the day, the creative juices come from you. Uh, The ideas come from you. The majority of outdoor events run in the UK are run by volunteers. They're run by what used to be called amateurs. It's not a word I often use. I believe professionalism is a state of mind, not a state of income. It's about how you behave. And I've found that the voluntary sector are exceptionally good at organising and running events. They have other day jobs and they do it in their spare time. Local authorities, um, as Alison says, won't have money to put in. It's our job as, perhaps, leaders in the events industry, we're in this fortunate position, is to keep in touch with local authorities and make sure that they understand that people will, in their communities, want to engage in events. They will want to celebrate, they will want to do things, and they need to work in cooperation with local authorities and be singing off the same hymn sheet. There have been many years where the hymn sheet has gradually uniformed. We just have to get them all in the same church now.
4: But, Steve, the reality is, you know, with more legislation being brought in, it's going to be more and more difficult for volunteers. Uh, We're seeing struggles all over the country at the moment with volunteers obviously trying to get events on. That knowledge and that expertise is within local authority as well. And... We just all need to work together without sounding like some cheesy advert.
3: Indeed, but without the volunteers there won't be a professional end in the years to come. It's grassroots stuff, the volunteer section provides the professionals of the future.
1: Thanks Steve. Uh, Gary?
2: About 15 years ago there was a billboard advert, I think it's for The Economist magazine, and it simply read, nobody's last words were ever I wish I'd spent more time in the office. And some of the more enlightened local authorities realize that they really do need to give opportunities for people in their area and people who want to travel into their area to have a good time. And that's, you know, what I do, that's the meat of licensing. It's having a great drink with friends. It's going, listening to fabulous music and so on. And there are certain enlightened authorities that appreciate that. But there are more that are more concerned with how that festival may impact negatively on the local community. They don't tend to focus the unenlightened ones on you know, how much business it will bring in, how it might help put a place on the map, so people have heard of it, and bring in the income that helps everyone. They tend to focus on more short-termism. How will this impact on all the residents who are the voters for the very politicians who sit on licensing subcommittees and make the decision. But there is a transformation that happens when the land that's being used for the concert or the festival happens to be council-owned land. Because that means that the local authority that's cash-strapped, as all of them are, stands to get a lot of money from the rent of this land by the commercial operator. And then you see a total sea change. And then the local authority falls over itself to allow this event to happen, and some of the residents' concerns can be somewhat demoted uh, in importance. So my recommendation would be that if you can find land the council owns and strike a good deal, you'll probably find the licensing uh, proceedings go through a lot more smoothly. Yeah, go, Jim.
0: Yeah, I think our our industry has really not done itself enough service in actually getting the message through to local authorities of the revenue that comes in indirectly to that local authority through rates and other things from the businesses that make money locally. Uh, I mean, where the, where one of the reasons we managed to get DCMS to listen to us through the COVID period was by providing them with a lot of evidence of the value of outdoor events uh, from reports we managed to get from event organizers. And I think the the commercial arguments need to be increasingly put to local authorities to show that your event actually will generate revenue to their coffers as well as to the local community. And I I think if we don't do that, we do run the risk of local authorities turning away from events and and us suffering for that.
1: Okay, cool. So we've got a couple of minutes left now. Um, I'm going to and just do these uh, these questions very quickly if we can before we run out of time um, but the the first one is do we think that the new recommendations uh, will have an impact on cost um, to provide the levels required which could have an impact on the risk assessment yes uh, I agree yes cool question two um, Outdoor events face a lot of scrutiny through event management plans and local authorities and the safety advisory groups, um, but what can be done to hold indoor events and venues accountable, um, especially around safety and harm reduction?
2: Well, I mean, I, the Manchester Arena is, a, of course, an internal indoor event space, um, and a lot of what's been focused on the outdoor areas in the Purple Guide is now being applied with at least equal measure to indoor events. So I think you're going to start seeing, and I know the Purple Guide is moving towards not really being limited to just outdoor festivals and outdoor events, but I think sort of the standards should and could apply equally, both to indoor and outdoor events.
1: Yeah, I think more than ever we've realised that actually we are one events industry and we come in all different shapes and sizes, but so many of the suppliers, so many of the principles, so many of the stuff that we use is the same, that if we can start to apply knowledge learned from different spaces properly, then I I think that's a a really exciting opportunity.
3: My, My colleagues, my OPPO at the National Arenas Association referred to Manchester Arena as being an outdoor event with a roof on. And and it, it is interesting the way that those big arenas are starting to, to look to the Purple Guide. Um, I'm somewhat fearful that legals in the future will use the Purple Guide as as though it's some kind of Bible. It's more of a, a guidance document. Well, perhaps the Bible is a guidance document, I don't know. Well, let's not go there. No, I'm not going there. But it's not... Um, it, it, the Purple Guide is about guiding and about recommending, and it's about encouraging people of all ages, be they professionals or volunteers, to run outdoor events
1: great stuff right I, I'm going to I'm mindful of time so um, I'm going to kind of come to each of you with, with one last question and we've talked quite a lot today about Martin's Law um, as something which I think is very much on the horizon as event organizers have to deal with and get on top of um, if you were kind of from where you're sat at the moment what's the one other issue um, that you think uh, an event organizer needs to be thinking about as they're sat at home or sat in their office kind of planning their event at the moment is there any one thing that stands out for each of you so um alison i'm going to come to you first and sorry to chuck you the grenade uh, but you caught my eye as uh, as we walked around so.
4: i would go back to the point i made earlier make friends with your event team if there is an events team within a local authority speak to them engage with them understand what those priorities are of that local authority and work with them
1: amazing advice thank you so much jim
4: yeah i see. i mean i think the putting the financial
0: case for local authorities for events happening in their area is really important going forward. Uh, If we don't do that, we're going to lose out from it.
3: And Steve? For thousands of years, the human race have celebrated, gathered together, danced, sung, played instruments, read stories to each other. We ain't going to stop for any particular reason. We will continue to do it ad infinitum. And all I can do is encourage, here's the plug, purchase the Purple Guide. £25 subscription on an annual basis and if you want a smaller version for a small event there's what's called Purple Guide Light. Go on the website and have a look at it. My advice is get out there and run events, they are the future.
1: Thank
2: you, and Gary?
3: I can't reach the purple pros of Steve but um,
2: holy s- special pleading here, sort your licensing out way, way in advance of the event, by which I mean six to 12 months before the event. I cannot tell you how many panicked festival operators I've had who suddenly, six weeks before the event, realise they don't have an alcohol to allow music to be played and sell any alcohol. Um, And there have been some events that have had to be cancelled because they've left it too late. So sort it out really early. Don't let licensing be an afterthought. Amazing. So
1: uh, thank you so much to the panel. It's been an absolutely wonderful session. It's been great to have you all here. Thank you to everyone who submitted questions. Hopefully we've, uh, we've answered those for you. Um, we'll be around for a second up on stage. So if anyone has any immediate questions, please feel free to come and speak to us afterwards. Um, if not, I hope that everyone here has an amazing rest of the day and second day at the event production show. Thank you very much.